So this morning we will be in the Gospel of Luke. We are getting dangerously close to the end of it. So uh, as if I recall, uh, we have, I think, two sermons left after today. So I believe we'll be in verses 50 through 53 next week. And then I'll do one final sermon to, that will uh, we'll trace through the threads of the whole Gospel of Luke. So that way we can kind of step back and get kind of stand back again and reflect on the significance of this gospel, which is the longest gospel uh, of the four. Um, and uh, um, but it's, it has been quite a journey. So uh, but we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 24, we're going to be looking at verses 36 through 49. You can find our passage on page 885 in the Pew Bible. I'll turn my other mic on here. There we go. Uh, and uh, so uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. Uh, now, I, I did notice on the slides I prepared, uh, when I put, pull it up on the screen, the bottom address is wrong. So, <laughs> so for, we are in Luke 24, 36 through 49, so don't let it throw you off. It's going to say 13 through 35. So, all right. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you and I, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. And then they then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So we are involved, uh, I, I noticed, uh, one of the things when we were in, you know, during COVID, we, you know, we, when it first hit, we locked everything down, you know, all social calendars came to an end, right? All church activities came to an end for a time. Uh, and, uh, and then when we, and then, and then we opened things back up and started going, and, and, and if you were, if you had the experience that I had, all of a sudden you were like, how do we do all this stuff? <laughs> You know, like, how are we doing all these things? Uh, It's like, apparently we were doing them all, but how did we do all these things? Some might say you weren't doing them very well, but I'd be like, okay, that's rude, that's hurtful, but probably, probably accurate. Um, But, uh, but, and so we realized we're involved in a lot of things in our lives 
But, but many, if not all of these things, have limits in our lives as to how much time they take up, how many resources they take up. You know, it's, it, it, it's so, you know, what sports teams we root for, uh, what politician or party we are voting for, uh, where we shop, what kinds of clothes we wear, where we work, all of these things have limits that either are self-defined limits or limits we place on them in how much they affect our lives or even how much of something you can have before it's considered unhealthy. But this is not the case when it comes to being a Christian. Our faith is not merely a part of our lives or an important part of our lives, like a percentage or a chunk of a pie chart. Being a Christian is a calling that is placed upon the whole of our lives. Uh, In fact, it is the calling through which we evaluate and operate in every other calling. We evaluate uh, what, uh, every, how we vote, how we shop, how we live, how we uh, are entertained through being a Christian. What it means to be a Christian. Um, now, if somebody says, that's why I'm a state fan, you're kind of, all right, you're going a little far, all right, so... But this is, this is true, and it's so true, that our identity is, uh, as, uh, as human beings is defined by our Christianity in that we are made in the image of God and we are being renewed after the image of Christ. And all by faith in Jesus. Now I bring all of this up because the, the, the principle is... Uh, is uh, because the principle uh, is, is true that the more something demands of us, the greater it, the cost must be paid to it. Because we are limited beings. That's why we may give up voting for certain people or certain parties, because it's like the cost is too high. We may give up rooting for a certain team because it's taking too much of our time. The cost has become too high. We may give up working a, a, a certain job. Maybe it makes a lot of money for us. Uh, it provides a lot of money. Um, or maybe it's, it's a lot of fun, but it's, it's costing us too much in other areas. But the scriptures are clear that being a Christian can cost even our very lives. And it's not too much. As Christians, we commit to give our lives for the cause of Christ. And as such, the higher the cost, if this is something that, could, that, that can demand the cost of our very lives, well then I think very naturally we would expect a greater reward for it as well. And that is true. The great reward of, of the Christian faith is forgiveness of sin. Righteousness that we don't deserve, eternal life in the kingdom of God, and all by faith in Jesus Christ. But life is hard, and doubts are real. Struggles and afflictions come in without warning and can leave us in a state of confusion and bewilderment, not unlike what we see in the disciples even here in this passage. I do think it's interesting that Luke spends so much time detailing how confused and slow to believe the disciples are. 
Not only is this a wonderful evidence for the apologetics, uh, you know, the apologetic that our faith is true because the founders of a faith don't tend to place themselves in a negative light if it's not real, if it's not true. They're like, yes, follow me. And let me sh- now read this thing about how dumb I was. All right. But this is certainly for our benefit as the people of God. This account is for us. Because we continue to explore this theme of what Jesus does when his disciples are bewildered and confused. When they are slow of heart to believe in the most important reality before them, the resurrection of Jesus. And so what does he do to his bewildered, confused, slow to believe disciples? He does two things in this passage. He gives his disciples assurance And then he gives his disciples a mission. And we'll look at each one. First, in verses 36 through 43, Jesus gives us his, uh, gives us assurance. He gives us assurance. He gives us three assurances in verses 36 through 43. The first assurance is that Jesus is truly alive. The disciples are busy talking about the, the experience of the two men on the road to Emmaus where they had seen the risen Christ. And then as they're discussing the sighting of the, of the risen Christ and, going and, and kind of wrestling with whether or not they're going to believe these guys and they're amazed and, and, and bewildered about it, all of a sudden uh, Jesus is standing in their midst giving them quite a shock. And what would he say to them? He says to them, the standard Jewish greeting, peace to you. But this, well, you know, the greeting may be standard, but the moment is hardly. And neither are the significance of those words. For the risen Savior comes to his disbelieving disciples with a word of blessing. And that speaks volumes to Jesus' attitude towards his weak and unworthy followers even today. What has Jesus come to do? He has come here to quiet the doubts of his disciples and to bring them to faith in his resurrection. But why does it matter if his disciples believe he is raised from the dead? According to liberal Christianity, it doesn't matter. Even a liberal Christianity, kind of the old school liberal Christianity that, that, would, that would say, well, Jesus is raised from the dead, and so therefore everybody's saved. Okay, it's kind of universal salvation. Well, but Jesus seems to believe that faith is required in the reality of his resurrection. It's not just that, uh, that the resurrection needs to happen. You have to have that, but you also need to have faith, personal faith in Jesus that he is raised from the dead. He is correcting them for the wrong things they're believing about him. And he's correcting them to get them to believe the true things that they are slow and almost unwilling to believe. Matthew Henry wrote on this passage uh, that when our hearts are troubled, we often conjure up harmful and sinful thoughts in our minds. When our hearts are troubled, we often start thinking the worst things. Isn't it comforting to know that that's true hundreds of years ago when Matthew Henry wrote that, as it is today? 
He goes further arguing that many, even if not all, but many of our troubled thoughts actually stem from the wrong ideas that we have about Jesus and the gospel. It matters that Jesus' Jesus' disciples believe because faith is the means by which all who come after them and they are saved. The Christian life is one of faith, which here can be boiled down to to belief, faith in a simple truth. Jesus is alive. And he comes to offer proofs to that very point. He shows them himself that he has flesh and bone down to a to to down and and he wants to show them that he's not a spirit. He's he's not a ghost like they initially assumed. You know, he's not like the, the you know, he's not like the Wizard of Oz who's really a man hiding behind the curtain pretending to be something he's not. He's like, "No, no, no, come touch. Come touch and see." If Jesus is dead, then all of it's for nothing. All the years on the road with Jesus are for nothing. The thousands of years of the, of the history of the church are for nothing. A massive waste of time, talent, and treasure. But we are not Christians because of a sunk cost fallacy. Because, well, you know, we've been putting in so long, might as well just keep going, Right? It matters whether or not Jesus is alive. And Jesus wants us to know today that he is indeed alive. He lives not because we know it in our hearts, unfortunately, as that hymn wrongly puts. Well-intentioned words for the hymn that, you know, I know he lives because he lives in my heart, that, that one. Okay, the problem with that hymn is that it creates this kind of like The test of evidence is a hyper-spiritualization that says as long as I believe it's true in spite of the evidence to the contrary. But Jesus is not alive because we believe. As I like to say, Jesus is not Tinkerbell, right? If we just clap and, you know, he lives, but if we don't, he'll die. We believe Jesus is alive because he is alive because of the historical fact of his resurrection, because of the metaphysical reality that Jesus lives. That's why we believe he's alive. We know he lives in our hearts, absolutely, but we know he lives in our hearts because he is risen, because he has demonstrated that he is alive as recorded here, and he continues to bear witness to that reality by his word and spirit. But that's a little too long to put in the hymn book, and it doesn't rhyme. What are you going to do? I'm not a hymn writer. And so he gives us assurance that he is truly alive. But secondly, he gives us assurance that he truly died. Notice in verses 39 and 40, he incites, he says, come, touch. What does he do? He shows them his hands and his feet. He identifies himself not only by his distinct features that they would have recognized as Jesus, but by his wounds by the marks of his crucifixion. This is not an imposter. It's not an impersonator. It's not one of those guys wearing those Mission Impossible masks that don't make sense because they just put another actor in and then they kind of, you know, do that. Jesus is assuring his disciples then and now that he is alive 
because he died. He needs us to know they are alive because he actually died and he died on a cross. We need assurance that Jesus died because Jesus' death on the cross was the death that he was dying for the guilt of our sin. Without the death of Jesus, what they call swoon theory, that Jesus didn't really die, just appeared to be, you know, to die, and they, you know, and somehow he escaped off the cross and got away. His disciples, you know, scooted him out of there, and he recovered from his wounds and then died later or something like that. Uh, you know, that's that, that's what's called uh, swoon theory. Uh, despite the fact that Roman executioners uh, were very good at executing people, this is their job. You, you had one job to do. And they were very good at it. In fact, they, they actually encouraged, they were like, look, at you. we're going to give you free reign to just come up with the most creative ways to torture and murder and kill these criminals. So there's no laws, there's no restrictions, do whatever you like to them. And they were very, very good at their jobs. But Jesus did die on that cross. The marks of which he bears before his disciples to prove to them that he is risen from that death. He has conquered that death. He has conquered sin. He has conquered the grave for all who trust in him. Further, even in his resurrection body, he is recognizable in his person, but specifically, we noted, by the marks of his death on the cross. And I found that interesting because the wounds which killed him, which in those days would have been marks of shame and humiliation, are, that, are the marks of salvation in the Savior. As we like to sing, our names are graven on his hands and written on his, hearts, on, on his heart. We know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid us thence depart. Jesus' resurrection is different than what we might call the reanimation of those who had died, the miracles that even Jesus himself had performed during his earthly ministry. There, the death of the person was reversed, and they were given new life. Their revivification, we could call it, undid their death for a time. But Jesus' resurrection forever seals his death, and the means of pardon for his people. Because the cross can never be undone. The wounds upon Jesus' resurrection body will never be taken away. Because he stands forever as our pardon, our forgiveness, and our righteousness. You need to know for certain that our Savior died. And he died for my sin, and he died for your sin, particularly, personally. We need to know that our sin and the debt of guilt that we owe unto God for those sins, the sins we even have yet to commit, has been paid by Jesus on the cross. If we need assurance of that fact, all we have to do is look 
to the resurrected Savior who bears still the marks of the cross he bore for us. Third, we are given the assurance that Jesus has a true body. Uh, there were very early heresies that in the, in the life of the church that said, well, Jesus only appeared to be a man, and thus he didn't truly die. He didn't truly suffer, because how could God suffer? Um, and, uh, and it's not unconnected with even those of the Jeho- Jehovah's Witness uh, um, uh, faith, which is a heresy, um, that believe that Jesus' return was not a bodily return, it was a spiritual return, which is why they call their churches kingdom halls, because supposedly Christ had a return, and, and people said very naturally, well, where is he? And they said, oh, well, it was a spiritual return. And it was like, okay. And it's like my kids did their spiritual chores. And, you know, they're like, I, they're done spiritually. I promise you. Right? Jesus takes great effort in convincing his disciples that he is alive. He even eats broiled fish, which can be really good and kind of mushy. So, but I love this detail that Luke includes here, that the disciples disbelieved for joy. It was too good to be true that Jesus was alive, standing in front of them, eating fish, and they could touch him and see him. They couldn't believe it because it is what they would hope would be true. It is dream, their dream come true, and it's, but it's impossible, Right? But Jesus set out to prove before them that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And what is more is certain because God has acted. So not only does he show them his body demonstrates that he can eat food and drink liquids, which which spirits cannot do. But why does it matter so much that Jesus has a body? We're like, okay, well, we, we get why we need to believe and we understand that, but, but why does Jesus have to have a body? Why does that matter so much? Why can't he just be a spirit? What's so wrong with that? Well, it's interesting is that it mattered a lot to the Apostle Paul. In fact, he highlighted it as, as a key point in, our, in, in the Christian hope. For one thing, it proves the promises that are made about the Messiah in the Bible, but it also, as the Apostle Paul tells us, it shows us the hope not only for uh, like th- that, that there will be a future for us, but it actually gives us a more specific hope for ourselves in the future. Because as Paul said in, in Philippians, he says, we await a Savior from there, from heaven, who will come, and he will make our bodies like his body. How do I, as a person living with a fallen body in this fallen world, a body that's getting older, a body that is going to eventually stop functioning. How do I have hope? How do I have assurance that one day I will rise? Jesus says, look at me. I am the living proof of the resurrection. Because, and that's what Paul says. He says, look at Jesus. As his body is, he will make us like him. doesn't mean we'll be him will be exactly him, but we're going to be like him in his resurrection. When Christ returns, 
and he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, to, and so Christ goes to his bewildered and confused disciples, and he brings to them assurance, not only of the reality of his resurrection, but also of the reality of the certainty of his death for our sin that can never be undone, but, and the certainty of the gospel promises that promise that we as his followers, his disciples, will follow in that resurrection life, even that our bodies will one day be resurrected like his. And, and, this, and, and so he, goes, he brings us to here, but not only there, he takes it because there is some replication of what he was doing with the disciples on the Emmaus Road here. But then he advances it further because not only does Christ give us assurance, he also gives us our mission in verses 44 to 49. And so what we have here is not merely an expansion uh, um, of the experience of the two men on the road to Emmaus. It's not just a larger version of that. But it's the assurance of salvation that is coupled with the commissioning of Christ's disciples. And in doing so, Christ gives us three things in our mission. He gives us our theology, he gives us our gospel message, and he gives us the help we need to do it. And so verses 44 to 45, he gives us our theology. Like he did with the men on on the road, Jesus opens up, and notice Luke wants to point this out for a second time. He opens up the scriptures to show his disciples that everything written about him in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. Notice he doesn't say that everything has been fulfilled. Some of it has. Some of it is being fulfilled. But all of it will be fulfilled. I mean, what do we think the ministry of the church is for? except as part of the unfolding plan of redemption that God has set forth. And so Christ supplies his church with what we can call a a biblical theology, a way to understand the central thread of the scriptures. That when we look at the whole of the Old Testament, the thing that ties them all together, everything together, that gives us a through line through the scriptures is the Messiah, is Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all the covenant promises of God. We have here confirmation that we as a church who came after this are to teach the scriptures in order that we might comprehend their meaning through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, some argue that it's too much to say that all the Old Testament is about Jesus. I don't like that statement. And it's correct to say that, you know, we we don't want to get silly uh, about it. We don't want to be like, well, you know, that lowercase t looks like a cross and, you know, you know, that kind of thing. Or or start playing the if you get if you look up, you know, the crazy stuff out there about like numerology in the Bible and uh, it just goes to some there's some there is figurative significance to numbers in the Bible, but. It's not like, well, this, this word has six letters, and the six letters, and the sixth word in Genesis is this word, and then this, if you take the sixth word, it's like, it's, I'm just kind of like, look, if, if you're using a decoder ring out of a crack in the jack box, you know, cracker jack box to decode your Bible, uh, it's like if, it's, if you're doing like a Nancy Drew code breaker thing, it's not going to work, and that's not how the Bible's written, okay? It's just, and so, it's just, you got to get off the internet at that point and just go outside and get some get some get some vitamin. So, 
if we're going to get silly, also if we're going to get hyper-allegorical, allegory is a, is a legitimate form of interpretation. Paul explicitly um, argues for uh, using allegory um, uh, uh, to, uh, to understand uh, um, uh, the, the covenants. He says Sarah and Hagar can be understood allegorically as the, as, as the new covenant and the old covenant. Right, it says in the book of Galatians. Uh, but if we're going to say, you know, something, you know, like, oh, the red cord that uh, Rahab hung in the window in, in Joshua, in the book of Joshua, well, well, well that is a, a picture of Christ hanging on the cross. No, I'm sorry, no, no, we're not going to go there. Okay, that's just that's just getting silly. Um, it's you start getting this kind of this almost like a Gnostic kind of knowledge, where this secret knowledge that only they have. That tell you, you're like, I never would have thought of that in a million years. There might be a reason for that. Right? No, we have to be careful. But what do we make of Sarah and Hagar that Paul refers to as, as allegor allegories of the Old and New Covenants? What do, what do we make of the Passover lamb whose blood saved the people of God in the Exodus and, the, and John the Baptist who declares Jesus to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? What, you know, what, what do we uh, make of, of Hebrews telling us that uh, the Levitical sacrifices uh, in the earthly tabernacle find their fulfillment in Christ and his priesthood, his sacrifice, in the, as, as he enters into the heavenly tabernacle? Uh, and so we have to avoid you know, certain excesses. But we must clearly acknowledge that the Old Testament cannot be properly understood with, uh, with, uh, without Jesus as the one through whom makes sense of it all. But we must also dispense with any notion that we don't need, and this is very modern evangelical right now, unfortunately, we need to dispense with any notion that we don't need the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament lie the treasures of the Messiah that explain the significance of the Messiah, the wonderful history of redemption and the promises uh, of, of God for us. And, I, and I, I find it very interesting that you have some pastors of some very large evangelical churches that are encouraging us to you know, get, get away from the Old Testament, dish from the Old Testament. And you go to Jesus in this passage and on the road to Emmaus, and granted, yes, the New Testament wasn't written, but where does he go? He goes to what we call the Old Testament. And he says, it, it's about me. And so to ditch the Old Testament, to unhitch from the Old Testament, is to get rid of the scriptures speaking about Jesus. Why would we do that? How would that be helpful? Just because it is a little easier and, and, it, and it takes away some thorny questions that we have a hard time answering. But just as Jesus had to open the eyes of his disciples to see him earlier, so he has to open up the eyes of his disciples, the minds of his disciples, in order to comprehend the scriptures. And so we continue to pray, even when we gather for Sunday, when I conclude my pastoral prayer with a, what has historically been called a prayer of illumination, praying for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts that through the reading of, of, of God's word, uh, which is the inerrant portion of the preaching, and then that through the preaching of God's word, that he would speak to us and work in us. But we must have the active ministry of the Holy Spirit, Christ ministering to us by the Spirit right now for us to comprehend what is written here. J.C. Ryle 
wrote this as a, as a little extended quote here. He says, He that desires to read his Bible with profit must first ask the Lord Jesus to open the eyes of his understanding by the Holy Spirit. Human commentaries are useful in their way. The help of good and learned men is not to be despised. But there is no commentary to be compared to the teaching of Christ. A humble and prayerful spirit will find a thousand things in the Bible which the proud, self-conceited student will utterly fail to discern. And to that student, we could add pastor or scholar. The modern Christian, the modern churchgoer, may think that he or she is wiser than the scriptures to stand above them, to evaluate them and edit them as, as, as they will. But the true Christian seeks to be wise in Scripture for their salvation and all by the grace and power of God. And secondly, these last two we'll move through rather quickly, but Jesus gives us our gospel. The Old Testament interpreted through Christ can be distilled into a single message given to the church as Jesus does here. A single message to proclaim that we must know that it was written and fulfilled that Christ should suffer and, uh, and die and on the third day rise from the dead. And second, that from then on, repentance for the forgiveness of, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in, the, in his name to all the nations starting in Jerusalem. The message of the church is not for each of us to determine for ourselves or according to each generation Thomas Jefferson famously said that uh, he threw out the idea that we should that you know every 40 years we should write a new constitution <laughs> that every generation should do that and you know and, and there's some kind of this that kind of attitude that well we need a modern gospel a modern approach we need to fit the modern you know person the message is the same throughout every generation the message is the same, even though the language may be different, the culture may be different. But calling upon the world to turn from sin in faith to Christ to be forgiven is a message that never changes. Here is our gospel. Here is our good news that we take into the world. And finally, Jesus gives us the help to do it. Verses 48 to 49. The disciples are declared witnesses of these things. In time, they would be called apostles and would get out, go out into the world to bear witness to all that they had seen and heard and touched. We are descendants of those witnesses bearing our own testimony. Our testimony is not the same as the apostolic testimony. It is not the eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Christ, but to the reality of salvation in the gospel the gospel that is redeeming us, and the gospel and mercy, the mercy of God is, that is available to any sinner who will place their trust in Jesus. But we cannot do this on our own. We cannot read our Bibles on our own, and we can't carry this message out into the world on our own. And so Jesus instructs his disciples to go into the city and to stay into the, in the city until the promise of the Father comes, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does come in Acts chapter 2, volume 2 from Luke. And he ushers in 
the era of the new covenant in Christ. And now we live in a world where the kingdom of God is breaking into the kingdom of the devil. Where the grace of God is at work in the hearts of men. And this is all done by the power of the Holy Spirit who resides in every believer. And so what a strength and help this must have been to Christ's disciples. It's, I don't think there's a way to overstate that. To help them believe the promises of God and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, but don't miss the fact that even with Jesus standing before them, he still had to open their minds to understand the scriptures, just as he did with the men on the road to Emmaus. But what a comfort and help it is to us to know that Christ truly did rise from the dead with a true body that we may be as he is one day. And we have received the commission from him, just as the disciples did, to take the message of the gospel, which is the fulfillment of what was written about the Messiah, and to take it into the world that by the grace and help of the Spirit, others might believe. With everything else going on in the world and in our lives right now, we need the assurance and the mission that God gives us to give us direction, to steady our feet, to strengthen our hope that by the Spirit's power we will persevere in faithfulness, the faithfulness, the obedience that proceeds from faith until the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us grace and help in our time of need and that you help your weary and confused and weak disciples who are often misguided and foolish. But you come to us. You set us straight. But you do not do so with harshness or cruelty. You do so with the assurance of who you are and the calling that is upon your people. And so, Lord, we pray that our faith and trust in you would be strengthened this morning. And that our calling would be made more certain. That wherever, wherever we're at in life, whatever stage of life we're in, wherever circumstances we are in, that we would receive that mission that you have given to us. To go and to proclaim forgiveness of sin in the name of Jesus to the nations. May we begin with the people in front of us, the people around us that you have brought into our path. We pray this would be done by the grace and help of your spirit and all in the name of Jesus. Amen.